to um, Acts this morning, Acts chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you open up to Acts chapter 1. We're going to kick off from verse 12 and finish off the whole second half of this chapter this morning. But let, just, just let me introduce this series a little bit to you. Um, I would normally have done that in a series intro, but we, we gave that responsibility to Jared last week. But he had no idea where we were going with this series. So here are a couple of hopes that we have for walking through the book of Acts in 29 weeks. It's going to be a long series, the longest series I've ever preached. Um, but the reason that we chose to do this slowly and thoroughly is, is because this book is so profoundly important for us and for our vision and mission as a church. The, f- the first hope that we have for this series is that this would fill you with gospel confidence. That as we um, see the trajectory of the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth, as we see the, the promises that Jesus made of I will build my church happening, as we see the stories of 120 disciples and then thousands of people coming to faith, what you'll notice throughout the book of Acts is that Luke, who is the doctor, historian, author of both Luke and the book of Acts, he, he gives us numbers all the time, 120, 3,000. Why are you laughing at me? What did I say? What was the picture? Put it back up. Daniel. Was it a picture of me in like... Oh, okay, it's just a picture. Um, what was I saying? Uh, you've distracted me, all of you. Stop it. 120 people in the first in the first chapter of Acts, and as you keep reading, you will notice that Luke keeps giving us numbers. Now, why does he give us numbers? We're not numbers people. Well, what he wants to do there, well, we are numbers people because every number is a person, and behind every person is a story that God wants to redeem. But Luke gives us numbers because he wants us to see. The fulfillment of Jesus' promises. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest seed that sprouts and grows is one of the largest trees. He wants us to see that when Jesus promised that you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, that that's happening, that he is building his church, that people are getting saved. And so he gives us all of these numbers to remind us that this is actually happening. And so our hope is, as we go through this series, that we'll fill you with gospel confidence that Jesus is working. The other hope is, uh, I'm just checking my mobile phone, it's turned on silent, if you haven't, you should do the same. Um, The other thing is that um, what what we want you to notice through this is that the mission of God hasn't finished. That when we get to the end of Acts chapter 28, what you see is that this, this good news of the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth and that we get to pen the rest of the story As we write Acts chapter 29 and live that out. Now we're a part of a network, a church planning network called Acts 29. And the reason is that we believe that God has called his church as the primary vehicle for calling the nations to worship Jesus. It is his primary mission strategy. And so the mission isn't finished. We're a part of the story and we get to write the next chapter. The final thing our hope is that you would be inspired as you see and hear the stories of the early church. Of people who have stepped out in bold faith, in spirit dependence, in proclaiming the good news of Jesus, proclaiming the gospel and seeing people come to faith of cities and nations, indeed the whole world being transformed by the power of God's work. And so as we walk through that, we hope that that stirs boldness and courage and inspires you on the mission that Jesus has called you to. But if you want to understand the key 
to the whole book of Acts, you need to go no further than Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the key to understanding the whole book of Acts. Because what it does for us is it gives us this literary structure that shapes the trajectory that Luke wants us to follow as he writes. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8 he says, Jesus speaking, he says, you will be my witnesses. There's certainty there. You will do it. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so you see this geographic expansion of the gospel that begins in Jerusalem and then expands out to Judea, still the people of God, and then Samaria, which is kind of half-breed Jews and Assyrians and that the Jews didn't quite like them, but the gospel went to them too, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And the whole thrust of the book of Acts is that the good news must, indeed will, go out. And so if you want to understand Acts, pay attention to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We're going to follow this journey as the Word of God literally transforms the world. So we're going to kick off in chapter 1, verse 12 this morning, and we're going to read, I'm going to read the, it's a, it's a fairly lengthy reading, I'm going to read the remainder of Acts chapter 1, and we're going to see as this movement, this move of God begins in the very early stages, before the Spirit of God is poured out, there is a season for the early church of waiting. So let's have a look together in Acts chapter 1, verse verse 12. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered and they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in about was was about 120, and said, "Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted to share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness." And falling headlong, he burst in the middle of he burst in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Luke tells us elsewhere that Judas hung himself in that field, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, "May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one dwell in it." And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. 
and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. We pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active, that you're a, a God who speaks to us. And God, as we think about the issue of what it looks like to be a people who wait well, who make decisions trusting your sovereign purposes, that you might speak to us this morning. In whatever context or place we find ourselves on in the spiritual journey this morning, we ask, God, that you would profoundly, by your Spirit, speak to us through your word. Transform our lives, we pray. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. And those who agreed said, Amen. Amen. You know, I think there are two things that we are hopeless at today. It doesn't really matter what generation you're a part of. We're, we all seem to be hopeless at these two things. And maybe some of you are better than others, but in general, these two things, for the most part, we are all woefully bad at. And these two things are waiting and making decisions. We are horrible at waiting and making decisions. I remember a last year flying from Sydney to LA for a conference and we got onto the aeroplane and we were about to be um, ferried across the, the runway and the little, I don't, I don't know if you realise this, but aeroplanes have tow bars on them and there are little trucks that come and tow the aeroplanes around and push them backwards out of the bay and the, snow, the tow bar snapped on the aeroplane and so the announcement came over, you know, pardon, pardon the interruption, but we've had a delay, a tow bar has snapped, we need to replace it. We'll keep you updated. Two and a half hours later, we're still sitting on the runway as we're waiting for the engineer to come and to check the tow bar to make sure it's safe. And then finally we start ferrying. And I'm like, this is a 15-hour plane flight and you've just added two and a half extra hours to my commute because of this tow bar that has snapped. And everyone was frustrated and cranky and the aircon wasn't working properly because the planes, you know, the, the engine wasn't moving. And it was. And then I was like, hang on a second. We're about to get into a metal box and fly 900 kilometers an hour over 6,000 Ks. It's going to take us 15 hours, yes, but you know what? Many years ago, that would have taken months and people probably would have died of scurvy and shipwrecked. And, you know, I'm sitting here and I've got movies and a blanket and meals. and <laughs> But here we are, super frustrated about a two and a half hour addition to my commute. I mean, look, it's not even just that. When I get, get home, I've got maybe a, a 20 second lift ride from the basement to the sixth story of our apartment complex. Gosh, that's a long journey. <laughs> 20 seconds aside, I mean, I am so bored in the lift. I'm like, Instagram for 20 seconds. I mean, like, we just cannot wait. We can't wait for bus stops. We are hopeless at waiting. Why? Why are we so bad at waiting? Well, a couple of reasons. I think the first is we live in an instant world, don't we? Instant noodles, instant coffee, instant communication, instant grams, instant this, instant... I mean, everything is so instantaneous that we just cannot wait. We can't handle traffic, we can't ha handle slow internet, we can't ha handle um, having to wait for our food at a restaurant that seems to be busy. We are just hopelessly bad at waiting because everything needs to be instant for us because we live in an instant world. Secondly, I think we can't hack waiting because we're so time pressured. Now, I've been thinking about that phrase, time poor, lately. I don't know if it's a good phrase because it seems to me that everyone has the same amount of time every day. We're time equal, but we feel this time pressure about us. And I think that's a reality. It's probably slightly different than it was for generations gone by. 
We work longer hours today. Research has shown us that. We commute longer than ever before because Sydney traffic is so wonderfully sanctifying as we sit in it. We, um, but life just feels a little bit more complex. And so we have this pressure on our time that maybe generations past didn't quite seem to feel. And so because time is probably the most precious commodity that we have today. We don't want to waste any of it. And so we're so impatient because time is important. We don't, we don't want to be waiting in queues and wasting time. We're time pressured. We live in an instant world where time pressured and finally busyness has become a virtue for us. I don't know if you've noticed this. You say to someone, how are you doing? They're like, oh, so busy. I say it all the time. I'm so busy. You know, I get emails from all of you guys all the time, and the first sentence all of you say is this. Now, hey, Matt, I know you're really busy, but, I know you're really busy, but, and I realize that maybe five of you sent emails to me this week and I haven't replied yet. I'm sorry. I'll get there. <laughs> but that's the perception, isn't it? That busyness is this virtue that we have today. I'm really busy. And why do we say that? Because we value productivity. We want to be productive. We want people to think that we're doing something really significant, important, and so we've got to be busy to do that. And so we're just really busy people. And that means that when we're busy, we're constantly watching the clock. We're constantly monitoring time. We're constantly on about productivity. We're busy. And that means that we cannot wait. We hate to wait. But you know, we're also hopeless at making decisions. If you've ever been out to, to a restaurant for dinner and... Um, you know, the menu's there, and there are so many options, and everyone else around you is making their decisions. You're like, what are you going to get? I'm going to get, what are you going to get? And, and so why do we do that? Because we want to avoid that moment of food envy when someone else's plate gets delivered. You're like, oh, I should have got that one. We are hopeless at making decisions. Every Monday morning, Tash and I'm like, day off today, what are we going to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. I asked you first. What do you want to do? You make the decisions. I've got decision fatigue. You make the decisions, right? There's about a billion parks in Sydney. There's a hundred cafes. We want to visit them all and we just cannot figure out which one to go to. We cannot seem to make decisions. Why? Well, I think one of the reasons we can't make decisions is we have too many options. I mean, do you remember the time when there was just two choices of milk? It was either full cream or low fat. Now, there's like a hundred varieties of milk. How do you know which one you need? A2, no A2, soy, vanilla, whatever. You know, like there are just so many choices. Or there used to just be one Coke. And then there was caffeine-free Coke. And then there was Diet Coke. And then there was vanilla Coke. And now there's like Coke Zero and Coke Life. And we're just overwhelmed with options. And when there's so many options, you don't know which one's the right one. And so we just cannot seem to decide on which one to choose. The other reason I think we can't make decisions today, and this is particularly true of, I think, the, the millennial Gen Y generation, is that we live with this illusion of perfection. This is something I heard in a, um, Craig Rochelle's leadership podcast. He's talking about why we can't make decisions. He said one of the reasons is that we live with this illusion of perfection, that everything that we see in our life is someone else's highlight reel. You see that they're amazing you know, hashtag food porn post, and you see their holidays, and you see their party night out, and you see their all of the highlights of their life, and then you begin to compare your life against everyone else's highlight real, and you think, man, my life is so boring. I never do anything fun. I mean, I just look at Aziel's Instagram, I'm like, man, that guy's always out doing something fun. I think Aziel is probably the only person with a life that is a highlight real. Everything he seems to be doing is just, I'm like, man, that guy's got the best 
Insta story. Just do yourself a favour. Follow Easy Woman. <laughs> Make yourself feel depressed. <laughs> but the reality is, we live with perfection in front of us all the time, and that generates us in us this fear of failure. What if I don't choose the perfect thing? What if this isn't going to look good on my Instagram? What What if What if I fail? And that fear of failure cripples us and means we cannot make decisions. We can't even pick a meal. We can't even pick a cafe to go to. We're crippled by fear of failure because we live with this illusion of perfection. We cannot seem to wait. And we cannot seem to make decisions. But you know, I think um, there is this profound sense of freedom that we have in knowing that Jesus is in control, that he is real, that he is alive, that he is governing the affairs of his church, that he is building it, that he is using us, that God is sovereign, that he has a plan, and that we're a part of it. I think there is a profound freedom from living in that reality that ought to make those who are people of faith live counterculturally in a culture that seems to not be able to wait and make decisions. We ought to have a deep sense of peace about us with time. I mean, when, when you have a perspective of eternity, that can make time feel very short. That can make 80 years feel very short. But it can also give you a perspective of, we're going to be around here for a long time. When we live in the reality that Jesus is real, that he is sovereign, that ought to profoundly change us. We ought to be countercultural people when it comes to waiting and decisions. And so we're going to look at how the early church did both of those things in this season of waiting and decision making. They are blissfully patient, and yet they are boldly decisive at the same time. So, four things that the early church does is they wait and decide. They pray, they read the scriptures, they use wisdom in community, and they pray again. So let's have a look at verse 14. Let's see how the early church, this early community of faith, waited on God. But... um. Before, before we get there, let me just give you a, a little bit of context on this. Jesus has just commissioned them. The most important mission that he's given to anyone on the face of the planet, take the good news to the ends of the earth. They've, um, they've just spent 40 days with Jesus. He's been teaching them, showing them how all of the scriptures point towards him. They've just seen him ascend to the Father's right hand, and now they're waiting for the promise that he said would come, the promise of the Holy Spirit. They're waiting. But the question is, why wait? Why do they need to wait? I mean, if anyone is ready to step into the Great Commission, it's the disciples, right? They've just spent three years being apprenticed by Jesus. They've been commissioned. They've been told that they're going to be sent. Why wait? Well, because there is no effective, powerful, life-changing mission without the empowering presence of the Spirit. There is nothing. There is no effective, lasting, life-changing mission without the empowering presence of the Spirit. And so they're told to wait that means that those of you who have received the Spirit are equipped to go. What we really need is not more training, more equipping, more knowledge, more... What we really need is Holy Spirit empowered boldness to do what Jesus has called us to do. The thing, the thing that radically transformed the world in the first century were the disciples of Jesus with faith and courage. Faith and courage. And they went out. And the whole world heard about the gospel. So, as they wait, 
which you've got to remember for Peter, the impulsive Peter, it maybe is a very difficult thing, right? And so they're waiting, but their waiting isn't inactive. So if the first thing they do is pray. Have a look at verse 14. All these, that is all of the, the people, the disciples and those hanging out with them, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with women and Mary, the mother of James and his brothers. And you'll notice Luke constantly mentions women in both his gospel and in Acts because they have a profoundly significant role and purpose in God's plan and kingdom. And so he throws it in there. Whenever it's relevant and real, counterculturally includes women in the story of God in the first century. The question is this. How do we know our waiting is waiting by faith? And the answer is that we find ourselves on our knees in prayer. That's how we know our waiting is waiting in faith, that we are praying. But so often our waiting seems to be characterized by fretting and worrying and planning and stepping out and just doing things because we can't bear to wait any longer. As we wait for results, as we wait for change, as we wait on a, a person, as we wait for news, do we find ourselves praying and waiting faithfully? church here does exactly that. They're not inactive. They're not just rushing out, but they're dependently praying. And there is something beautiful about this prayer. It says there that they prayed with this deep unity and agreement, that they were of one mind or one accord. They're not distracted by carpet colour and social media strategy and philosophy of ministry. I mean, they haven't really had much time for those kind of distractions, but they are consumed, devoted, and agreeing together as they plead with God to help them do what Jesus has called them to do, take the good news out. They're devoted to prayer. And I th you see this pattern throughout the book of Acts. You see this pattern time and time again. You get to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and you see that the church devoted themselves to prayer. You get to Acts chapter 4, verse 31, and you see as James and, uh, and John are released from prison and they go back to the community, they plead with God in prayer to give them boldness to declare the good news. You see in Acts chapter 6 where the apostles say, we, we're not going to wait on tables because we need to devote ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. You see in Acts chapter 10, there's prayerfulness that sends Peter to take the good news to the Gentiles. You see in Acts chapter 13, 3, it's during a season of prayer and fasting that the Spirit sets apart Paul and Barnabas for mission. Prayer and devotion to prayer is such a feature in the book of Acts. They're devoted, devoted to prayer, personally, corporately. You know, for me, um, I was really encouraged last week at our prayer meeting that we had in, in the office. We're doing monthly prayer meetings as a result of our vision at the beginning of this year. And, and we had a prayer meeting. And, just, you know, Ruth and Scotty are leading that so well. So can we, can we just thank them and honour them for that? And, um, Ruth led us so well last week. But as we were leaving, um, I was just chatting to Matt and Robin Newfield. And they said to me, um, oh, sorry, we weren't at church this morning. We've been on holidays. It's like... But you're here. They're like, yeah, yeah, we, we, did, we didn't want to miss the prayer meeting. So they drove back an hour from down the coast to come to the prayer meeting from their holidays to then go back again. Gosh, we've all got a thousand good reasons not to be at a prayer meeting, don't we? We've all got good reasons. I mean, work's the next day. It's Sunday night. Maybe there's a good movie on, and that might be a good reason. We've all got a thousand reasons to miss prayer meetings, but sometimes we let the good override the great. This church is devoted to prayer. 
And I want to call us in light of our vision for this year to be a church that would move forward on its knees. To not see dwindling numbers of prayer meetings because it's inconvenient or hard or there are other good things that we need to be doing. But to be a church that would plead with God to do what we cannot possibly do ourselves. See this city radically transformed. See communities of light planted across our city. See new churches planted. See disciples made. See more baptisms happen. All of that. All of that is God's work. And as we were reminded of at the beginning of this year, every move of God in history has begun with prayer. This church and we need to be devoted to prayer. And so as they wait, they're not inactive, they pray. But secondly, the second thing they do is they listen to the voice of God. So they've got a decision to make. Judas has defected, he's betrayed Jesus, he's hung himself. Will they replace him? Won't they replace him? And Peter steps up. He leads. He takes initiative and he leads his brothers and sisters. And he says this. And he points them back to scriptures. He says this in verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted to share in his ministry. And then down to verse 20. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And secondly, let another take his office. They're faced with this decision. What should they do? Peter says, well, we've got to go back to the Scriptures. We've got to go to the the Word of God that would guide us and shape this decision. And you notice there, Peter has a very high view of the Old Testament. See what he says about the Psalms there? He says, when the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. This is God's word. This is not just a nice story. This is the very word of God that the Spirit of God has used the prophets of God to speak to us. There is no difference between Old and New Testament. The the Old Testament is as relevant to us today as the New. And so Peter comes. He knows that the community needs to hear the voice of God. And so he points them to the Scriptures. And he goes to two Psalms, Psalm 69, Psalm 109. Both of those Psalms are about the Lord's anointed and his enemies, uh, the enemies of God coming against him. And Peter takes those Psalms and he prophetically applies and appropriates them to Judas's context. And he says, as a result of these Scriptures, these things must be true. Two things. The first is that When Judas hangs himself in the field, that field will be desolate. And that's exactly what they saw happen. That field was cursed. No one would build a a house on it, a dwelling on it, because Judas had committed suicide there. And secondly, someone else will take his place. He needed to be replaced. Now, one of the reasons that Judas needed to be replaced was that 11 wasn't a nice round number for them. 12 was the number they needed. Why? Because... What we see happening with the disciples of Jesus is he appoints 12 disciples, 12 apostles. What he's effectively doing is saying, representatively, these are the, this is the new Israel. This is the new people of God that I'm going to work in a new era, in a new way, in an era of the Spirit. So where Israel had 12 tribes and 12 leaders, Jesus comes and says, I'm going to do a new work. And here are the representatives of the people of God. And they are going to receive the outpouring of the Spirit. Additionally, Jesus says in Matthew 19 that 
It's the 12 disciples plus Judas's replacement who will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the number 12 is important. They need to complete that. They need to find a replacement for, for, for Judas. And Peter is guided by the scriptures as he does that. So they're faced with a decision. How will they decide? As we're faced with decisions, how will we decide? You know, Anchor, we like to say we refuse to believe the lie that we're wiser than God. We refuse to believe the lie that we're wiser than God. We submit ourselves to the authority of the Scriptures because it's God's Word. It is to us, it is for us, and it is a light to our feet and guides us. It is our final authority. Will we submit to the Word? This new community of faith is not only devoted to prayer, but devoted to the apostles' teaching to the Word of God. But you know, when we read the Scriptures, we realize that it doesn't give us advice on every single decision we need to make in life, does it? We're not told all of the specifics of what we need to do. I mean, yeah, we might be told that you need to, um, you know, that you're free to marry, and and in that in that choice, here are some here are some selection criteria. Make sure they love Jesus and all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't tell you the name of your future life partner in the Bible, doesn't it? Like God, please show me the one. It's Thomas. Right? I mean, very rarely does that happen. But, and so how do they make decisions in that context? Well, the community uses wisdom. The community uses wisdom. Have a look at verse 21. This is Peter speaking still. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptisms of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. The scriptures were clear. Someone needed to replace Judas, but the question was, who? And they didn't have a name, and so they exercised wisdom. As they looked around their community, which was around 120 people at the time, who were the men that had seen everything? Who were the men that were there from the beginning? Who were the people that we could appoint to replace Judas? They used wisdom to make their decision. They had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection, of the life and ministry of Jesus, of his baptism. And he needed to be the 12th man that would replace Judas. You know, in cricket, they, uh, they've got this thing called the 12th man, and it's not just that comedy act that we all grew up listening to, but there is a legit 12th man, and he doesn't do much. The 12th man in cricket cannot be a specialist batter, cannot be a bowler, and cannot be a wicketkeeper. All he can do if someone gets injured is step on the field and fill in as a fielder. And so it's a pretty, look, it's, it's a bit of a nothing role, to be honest with you. There's no superstars as 12 men. Generally, they pick a young, up-and-coming player, get them, get them alongside the team so they get a bit of an experience of team culture, and they run on with gloves, drinks, and replacement bats for when the bat is breaking. That's about all the 12th man does. He's a bit of a, he's not really important. But here, the 12th man is vital. He has to be a player. He has to be on the field. He has to be able to bear witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And as they survey the community of faith, two men come to mind. The first is Matthias, and the second is Joseph, or his Greek name is Justice. Uh, and, and we see that cultural phenomenon happening today. Many of those who have come to Australia from a Chinese culture might have a Chinese name and an Anglo name. 
remember um, one of my friends that I used to work with, her Chinese name, and I'm probably going to mess this up, but I think it was Ha Ku Luang, and her Anglo name was Maggie. <laughs> I mean, James Wong has got the same thing. I can't remember. He told me last night. I can't remember what his Chinese name is, but his, his Anglo name is James. And the same thing happens here in the first century. Often people with a Hebrew or Aramaic background had a Greek name as well, because Greek culture was, was what was dominant in the day. And so these two men had both been eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They were both put forward. Now, why is it important that they're eyewitnesses? Why is, why, why is that such a big deal? Well, because Christianity is a historic faith. It's a historic faith based on historic fact. No one is calling anyone to believe on the basis of a subjective dream or vision or revelation that cannot be tested. Christianity is an historic faith and we call people to believe on the evidence of a real, testable resurrection from the dead. And so these men had to be eyewitnesses because they were going to have to stand to give account to what had happened. And so these two men, their names are put forward and the community decides... But this decision is not based purely on objectives, like, all right, here's the two men, um, let's start a campaign, let's have a vote, let's see which, which man is, is, you know, is going to be the best, let's, let's make him fight it out, and there's none of that. Yeah, they've used their wisdom and the community's contributed to this, but they still turn to the Lord in prayer. And so we have prayer, word, wisdom, and more prayer. Have a look at verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. You see, the point here is that it is Jesus who appoints the disciples. Just as he appointed the first Original 12, as you read through the, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus appoints the disciples again here. Jesus is the one who appoints Matthias to replace Judah, Judas. He is doing exactly what he said he would do, that he would build his church, that he would govern and lead the mission. This isn't the disciples' mission, it's his mission that is being fulfilled. And he is there. He is present. He is acting. And you notice this prayer has this confident expectation that Jesus has already chosen his man. He's already made the selection. He already knows. And whilst the community might not, Jesus has already decided. And so they turn this decision over to him in prayer. And the method that they've chosen to use to discern who Jesus has chosen is what they called casting of lots. Now, we don't practice this anymore. It was practiced somewhat in the Old Testament, and this is the only occurrence in the New. And the, the process of casting lots, chances are what they did was they got a bunch of rocks, they wrote some names on it, they put it in a, in a bag or a pot, and they shook it around until one of them fell out, and the name that, that popped out was the name that they chose. Now, we might think, well, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's just chance, it's luck. But Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The stone might fly out of the vessel, but that process has been the Lord's guidance, the Lord's leading. 
The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so they submit this decision to Jesus. Pick your man. You've already chosen him. Show us which one you want. No, I think um, this is the last occurrence of lots in the scriptures. I don't think this is a practice we need to be imitating today. You, you get two job offers. You're like, which one should I take? You know, just write out a pros and cons list. You don't need a, a couple of stones. And, you know, and pray about it. Here's the thing. Prayer, word, wisdom from community. Prayer, prayer, more prayer. As we make our decisions... Now, as we have been filled with the Spirit of God, as we make those decisions, the pattern that you see throughout the book of Acts and indeed the New Testament is prayer, word, and wisdom from the community. Now, occasionally, yes, we do see visions and dreams and prophecies and um, God being very clear and directive, like he will say, go and preach the gospel to them. He will give Peter and Paul dreams and visions. But by and large, he's given us prayer, word, Wisdom in community and more prayer. As, as we wait, as we make decisions, are those the things that mark us? Because church, they ought to be our reflex. They ought to be the, the first thing we turn to as we are faced with a season of waiting. So we're faced with a decision that we need to make. We turn to word, prayer, word. We go to our community, our gospel community, and say, guys, I've got this decision. Can you speak into it? Can you give me wisdom? Can we pray about this together? We submit our decisions to the Lord because in the end, this life is not our own. It is Jesus who is using us for his purposes, for his mission, for the sake of his name, that it would be made famous to the ends of the earth. And this is only possible because of the gospel. This is only possible because we understand that Jesus is real, that he is alive, that he did rise again from the dead, that he did die on the cross to take away our sin, to wash us clean, and that he rose again and we are caught up in that resurrection of Jesus, just like we will see in a moment in the act of baptism, that we've died and been buried with Christ and then been raised again. All of this is true. And when that's true for us, we have this deep sense of blissful peace when it comes to waiting and time. And we have this bold confidence to step out and make decisions because he's in control. <coughs> God never takes a risk. He doesn't need to. He entirely knows the future. He doesn't make any risks. He doesn't take any risks. But because he doesn't, it means that we can. It means that we can step out in faith and trust him that he's good and then even our mistakes and our poor decisions he will use for his plans and purposes. So churches, we become a people who would learn to wait and make decisions in a profoundly countercultural way. We need prayer, the word, the community, its wisdom, and maybe a bit of more prayer for extra measure. In a second, we're going to respond and one of the the favourite things that we do, my, one of my favourite things we do here at Anchor is baptism. And I'm going to ask Jerusha to come up and explain that. But I'm going to pray that these truths would be true for us now. And then we're going to have the wonderful joy of doing some baptisms. So let me let me pray for us. Before we do, actually, um, if, you, if you haven't been baptised and would like to be, Jerusha is going to explain in a second how you can do that. So um, maybe you didn't come prepared for that, but today might be the day for you. So... 
um, Jerusha will explain what you need to do. So let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak so clearly to us in the scriptures. God, we ask that you would help us to be a people who are entirely dependent on you. God, we pray that you would help us to be people who would, out of almost automatic faith reflex, turn to prayer and word, that we would come to community and ask for your wisdom, and that all of our lives, all of our decisions, all of our waiting would be made in the knowledge that you are in control of all things, that you use us, that you have a good and perfect plan. We pray for these things now in the strong name of Jesus and those who agreed said.